Like, he still didn't give up. He didn't just go out and kill himself and say, like, life doesn't mean anything. What's the point? I mean, of all professions, he chose to be a writer. At the same time, isn't he kind of just, you know, the classic victim of abuse where they never face it and they end up just projecting it onto everyone else else for the rest of their life? It was true that I didn't have much ambition, but there ought to be a place for people without ambition. I mean, a better place than the one usually reserved. How in the hell could a man enjoy being awakened at 6.30 a.m. by an alarm clock, leap out of bed, dress, force feed, shit, piss, brush teeth and hair, and fight traffic to get to a place where, essentially, you made lots of money for somebody else and were asked to be grateful for the opportunity to do so? Welcome to Band Book Club. We're your hosts, Nick and Rafaela. And today we are discussing Charles Bukowski's Factotum, one of our favorites. And really one of those books where if you're interested in getting into Bukowski, we think this is the perfect introduction. It's it's classic Bukowski. It's easy to read, it's short, and it's a lot of fun. And it's all about the working man. It's a good stepping stone, not just into his stuff, but into all sorts of fun things like being a nihilistic jerk and alcoholism and unemployment. So (laughs) anybody can relate. (laughs) So if you don't already know a a little bit about Bukowski, um, so his his real name, Heinrich Karl Bukowski, he was German born. He was an American poet, novelist and short story writer. Um, He obviously was heavily influenced by his terrible life and terrible childhood. And so his whole stories, all of his stories are really about, um, you know, poor Americans living as an aspiring writer and kind of failing along the way, relationships with a lot of women, alcohol, and just the whole act of working um, and how difficult it is to be a working man in America. I would say just struggles of all different kinds. But yeah, I mean, as far as this book goes, it's really focusing on all of the jobs he had growing up. So you're kind of in the middle of his life. You're not he's not quite a, an accomplished writer yet. And he's not a child anymore like he was in Ham on Rye. So just a little bit about some of the jobs he had and you get to hear about in this book. He was a dishwasher, truck driver. He was a truck driving loader. I don't know what you would call someone like that. Mail carrier, guard, gas station attendant, stock boy, warehouse worker, a shipping clerk, a post office clerk a parking lot attendant, a Red Cross orderly, and an elevator operator. He also worked in a dog biscuit factory, which you get to spend some time with uh, with that job in this book, a slaughterhouse, a cake cookie factory worker, and he also was someone who hung posters around New York City subways. So um, this, this book takes place after World War II, or is it still no, kind of going on? I think it's during World War II, and... Part of Bukowski's story that I think is mentioned in this book here is that he had to go to the 
it will enroll for the draft like everybody else back then. Mm-hmm. But I, I forget the name of the form he gets, but basically they decided that he was mentally unstable. Yeah, so he couldn't and, go. And um, he got, it's like a 5 or 4F form or something. And um, so basically everyone's off fighting World War II in this book and Bukowski is kind of stranded back in America and languishing between all these meaningless jobs during wartime. And that that was an interesting background, I thought, for the whole thing. That there was this war, the biggest war the world had ever seen going on, and he's just, mm-hmm. he's can't even keep down a he job. He can't keep a like job. a basic job. Because he's just basically drunk the whole time and sleeping around with women. But obviously, as far as this book being banned... It's more so Charles Bukowski is sort of a banned author. It's uh, always a huge red flag if you're going to have him on your bookshelf, as we've heard online. And he's someone that a lot of lonely boys will look up to, I think. Well, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I still love Bukowski. I love this book in particular. And... I was sort of one of those uh, kinds of guys you're talking about when I got mm-hmm. introduced it's to like, this. This man speaks the truth. In high school, this is how yeah. I feel. And um, I definitely uh, relate to him a lot differently now that I've gotten older. And um, I think that there, there's kind of a pitfall that you know certain younger guys can fall into with Bukowski where they kind of hold him up as a role model mm-hmm. the way I did. But I think it's worth explaining a little bit of the of my background there. So I got into Bukowski's books um, in high school around that time, um, maybe in middle school when – I mean I don't know if you remember. They'd start introducing you to what they would call like banned scandalous literature yeah. back in school and you'd get all excited about that and it would you'd end up getting the scarlet letter – or, or catcher um, in the rye. <laughs> yeah, and there's and you're you're almost a little bit let down as a kid. So um cuz you know, you want a little bit more rough content. Well, this is pretty rough in that it's really disgusting and Well, yeah, that's that's what hooked me as, as a kid. Um <laughs> when I found uh well Ham on Rye was the first one I found and I read that all the way through in a single night uh in my bathroom. But um, when I found that and factotum, it was like, okay, wow, this these were the this is the dirty stuff I was mm-hmm. waiting for when they were telling me like here's a banned book in high school, yeah. And uh, I I'd, I'd never seen that much explicit stuff in mm-hmm. a novel. That kind of language or language, it's just disgusting with all the bodily functions that he loves to mention and. It's pretty misogynistic, if you ask me. Yeah, there was a lot of rough stuff. And, you know, if you're starting to go through, well, you're a little bit after puberty, like that can be very exciting. Kind of exciting, to yeah. You. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I was kind of like one of those Bukowski stands, I think is the <laughs> word I hear, for a while. And I thought, you know, this this guy seems like just a picture of, toughness and masculinity and a kind of freedom where you know you just treat everybody terribly and you're not held down by any job or you know any social conventions and 
that's that's kind of the big selling point for Bukowski is it, this persona of his where he's this hundred percent authentic tough guy doesn't take anything from anybody like drinker brawler womanizer and i i have to admit like as a young kid with not really a formed sense of ethics or view of myself or worldview that was very compelling to me for a while but like i said as as i've gotten older i started relating to him differently and Mm -hmm. i i'm starting to think well I, i know a lot of that stuff is really not what not as glamorous as it might seem to you, especially if you haven't experienced any of this stuff for real. Yeah, I think also the appeal, at least for myself, getting into Bukowski was, yeah, he's like this cool guy and he brings up points that you can relate to and be like, oh man, this guy speaks the truth. Like this stuff is still true today. And it's also just written in a way where you can really understand it easily. It's not complicated. It's not. Oh, that was another thing I got to say real quick that that drew me in so much compared to all just the, the other way it's written and the style it, of it. Yeah, the style is it's like even more direct than Hemingway. Like he there are three or four word sentences pretty mm-hmm. commonly in this book, but it's. It, it was a big contrast to the stuff you and I were reading in school back then, you know, like Victorian stuff, stuff from the 1800s. Yeah. I think that's also what kind of drew me in and I think draws in a lot of people because it's going to be so different than anything else you've read. You can get through it so much easier and it's hilarious. You don't need really any education to understand yeah. the story. Yeah, but but you have to be willing to take in a fart joke. Yeah, there's farts, there's <laughs> scatological stuff, throw up. I mean, there's crabs, all sorts of horrible things. I, I want to talk about the crab scene. But yeah. um, just to get through this little spiel with me before we get into the rest, I've coming back to the novels as I've gotten older, the only one that really holds up to me is Ham on Rye because, mm-hmm. you know, it's there was something there with him being a kid that – is is just still compelling to me, yeah. but in all the other ones like this, you get the um, uh, the Chinaski character Henry yeah. Chinaski, which is his like really thinly veiled version of himself in these books. But I guess the the fact that that Chinaski persona is so dominant in the novels is kind of what's pushed me back from them as I've gotten older. It seems almost like a kind of posturing to me, or at least when you, what sticks for me now is his poetry, which seems a lot more honest than that Chinaski thing that's going on in all these books. And in the poems, if you go back to them, he's way more vulnerable. He's mm-hmm. he ventures a lot further into looking at himself and maybe some of the scary stuff that's really going on in there. He. He's a lot more hopeful and optimistic. Like if you look at the last uh, few lines of that poem, The Crunch, where he's talking about hope and stuff, there's no hope. There's no optimism. There's no like self-reflection even really in in Chinaski in the novels. It's just – it's like almost this play character. It's just the tough guy. And yeah. as well as this is written and as – you know, the, 
great as the side characters are in funny situations. There's just something about the Chinaski persona, the Chinaski character that just does not Feels ring fake. as true to me as I get older. Yeah, and that that's what I mainly want to talk with you about today is like, do you think that – does that feel authentic to you, as, especially now that you've come back to the book more than once or you're getting older? Yeah, I mean – Or do you think it's just this big act for him? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Before we continue, a quick interruption. Want to purchase the book we're discussing in this episode? Well, check out Bookshop. Bookshop is an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. As more and more people buy their books online, Bookshop has created an easy, convenient way for you to get your books and support bookstores at the same time. Bookshop will give away over 75% of their profit margin to stores, publications, and authors. If you want to shop the books we've covered on the podcast, visit the link down below in the description. We do receive a small commission based on sales, so thank you for all your support of our channel and podcast. You know, it's hard to tell because, yeah, in the book, obviously, Bukowski is Chinaski. He is this character. And in real life, I mean, what, he gives his poetry readings and he's shouting at the audience and swinging back his wine bottle and he's ready to fight anybody. And, you know, his whole spiel or deal is don't try with the boxer. And... At the same time, he's pretty sensitive. Like in Ham on Rye, things do bother him, and he admits, like he was a he was a I don't know, not I don't want to say like normal boy. He was just a very normal, happy go lucky boy who was slowly destroyed by society and everybody, and that made him that way. But like, what was that? I watched an interview, and somebody was like, "Define love," and he was like, "Love is like." A fog that melts away with the first daylight of reality or something. And the lazy that's it, it melts away. It's like obviously that bothers him. Like he he probably does want to love and and be loved and he just has this like it fades away. It's it's so dramatic. Like if you ask somebody who really doesn't care about anything, like what love is, they'd probably just be like, Love isn't real. Shut up. (laughs) Well that's I mean it's a thing that we've talked about on a lot of our episodes, you know, this this theme of nihilism in literature, especially when we've been talking about Brady Stanellis and, um, and Camus, and... which I think he's kind of like an updated version of Merceau in this book anyways. Like it's the stranger, but in World War II instead of world after World War One. Mm-hmm. But um, is is that real nihilism, though, if you're taking the time out of your day to write poetry and reflect on how you know sad everything is and right but also how like beautiful things could be if people didn't have this horrible like working class machine grinding them down like it and he does say like he he does verbalize this in the book too it's not just my reading of it like there's He's talking to somebody asks him what he believes in the book and he says, I believe in nothing. Mm-hmm. And um he he's yeah, he believes in no God, like no rules. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if you know about his real life, he was an extremely disciplined author. He wrote all the time. He was constantly sending out letters and 
trying desperately to get published. And I just picked up a book of his a couple weeks ago that was an entire book he wrote about writing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, how much he's, he tells you how much discipline that takes and, mm-hmm. you know, how you have to really devote yourself to this craft and give everything you got. That doesn't sound like nihilism to me or somebody that really believes in nothing. So, again, is it is it just like yeah. a like a punk or goth kid in high school hanging out at the mall talking <laughs> about all this stuff but, like, putting in the effort to go buy clothes and, like, learn the right things to say and the right – is it just like a – I don't know, something he's hiding behind, do you think? I would say so. It's like if you're going to take the time to write about – all these sad things in life that, you know, why does it make you sad? And, uh, you know, pointing out the ugliness of the world or the beauty of it or, or the fact that he even chose to work in this book and try jobs, even though he, he sucked at the end of the day and never really put in the effort, like he still get, didn't give up. He didn't just go out and kill himself and say like, life doesn't mean anything. What's the point? I mean, of all professions, he chose to be a writer, which is a pretty, you know, you know, very different way of life. It's not like someone who says, I'm going to work to be a doctor. I'm going to work to just be the person that scoops poop out of a stable. Like he chose to be a writer. That's a very sensitive thing. He's creating something. He's being an artist. Like that yeah. creation is the opposite of nothing, of nihilism or destruction. So I think he was just a confused man who probably hid behind this persona, like you say, of this macho man because he probably felt uncomfortable to really share and admit that he really did want to find meaning in life or that he did get sad because he felt alone. And he would just lash out with this drinking and I'll beat you up attitude. So who knows? I'm not in his brain and I'm, you know, I'm not sure what he really thought at the end of the day, but it does kind of feel like a misunderstood little boy. And you you definitely understand that, uh, especially the more you learn about his parents in this mm-hmm. book, or if you read Ham on Rye, I mean, that's what all of that is about, but... One of the most interesting scenes in this book to me was when he loses a job. And um, no, I think it's actually after he's trying to clean some window blinds and he gets drunk and picked up by the police. Hmm. And um, dad has to go pick him up and bail him out. That one? Or no, just when he has to go back to his house for the first time. Oh, okay. And um, he, he comes in, his dad is yelling at him. And he throws up on their tree of life rug in the living room. And the dad shoves his head down and he's like, this is what we do with a dog mm-hmm. when it messes up the floor. And I think he, he jumps up and punches his dad right in the face. His mom scratches up his neck. And um, yeah, I mean, you just see a, a little glimpse into how horrible that relationship is. But mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about what do you what do you think the book was really about because a big part of it to me was taking an examination of you know the effects that that kind of trauma from your parents has on a person and their own self-esteem and the way they look at and treat other people that's that's what a lot of this felt like to me was him taking a look at that side of him 
Before we continue, just a quick interruption. Are you enjoying this episode? If you are, go ahead and like and subscribe. If you have anything to add to the discussion, go ahead and comment down below. Now back to the episode. Yeah, I think it was meant to be like pointing out how messed up society is. Like you, like the opening quote, you know, you're forced to do this work that's not even benefiting you. It's benefiting somebody else. And look how tragic it all is. No, I, I mean more in relation to like his parents treated him horribly in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you see after that in all, every scene in the, the book after effects how of- he kind of transfers that to other people and his reaction, his interactions with them. And he puts them down and he pushes them away. Yeah. Like I had a crummy life, so I'm going to yeah force you to have a crummy life too <laughs> sort of a thing D- did you get that sense at all while you were reading yeah, it? yeah i mean it's not like he was raised horrible but then he learned from it and said i never want to treat anybody like my parents treated me it's like he's pretty horrible to a lot of the women he's with or just his bosses or co-workers i mean he tries to f- buy, uh, beat up a bunch of his co-workers so he doesn't really grow up from that childhood he had. Yeah, and that that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier with, um, you know, you're supposed to buy into this image of he's completely free, he's independent, mm-hmm. he's his own guy, he's this unique artist, creative yeah. And why did he maverick. choose to work and stuff? But is is at the same time, isn't he kind of just, you know, the classic victim of abuse where they never face it and they end up just projecting it On onto everyone else. else for the rest of their life? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, let think. Let's go over some of the scenes that kind of show that, like he literally murders somebody in this book at the horse track. It's true, it, and it's just kind of casually mentioned in in the novel. And you have to kind of go back and be like, did he kill? Did did this guy die? Because uh, you're not really sure. It, it says that yeah, he like pushes this guy into the bleachers. Spoiler alert. But they're on some bleachers and he wants that guy's seat because he was there first. And he just like beats this guy up and says he like falls through the bleachers to the ground. Like they're high up. So it's like, did that man just get like horribly paralyzed or did well, he yeah, die? And, and he does some things to make you think like, oh, something? well, maybe I didn't really do this or maybe it was a dream. Like, first of all, that whole chapter is in italics. And then... um yeah, like, he, is it just all happening in his mind? Yeah, and then he talks to the girl he's with, Jan, after that. And he's like, I can't believe what happened yesterday. And she says, what are you talking about? So you think it's all a dream? But if you go back and read closely, and I hope somebody points me out if I'm wrong in this, but he he leaves like a little Easter egg in that <laughs> italic chapter. And he mentions one of the horses running in the race is Three-Eyed Pete, and it wins or something. And... In the chapter after that, he picks up a horse pamphlet, and it's just casually mentioned, like, Three-Eyed Pete won. So the implication Mm. is all that really happened, and it wasn't just a dream. But anyways, we're talking about, you know, how does this trauma that he had as a kid manifest in his behavior throughout the book? The murder thing is probably the most overblown example. His treatment of Jan is also pretty horrible. Yeah, Jan or any of the women yeah. that he encounters. He, I mean, he really like beats him up and <laughs> Well, he he physically abuses Jan. He's 
publicly in a bar and he calls her all sorts of names. Um, there's, there's other women in this book too that, uh, and he just, it's just like, you know, so typical that it's almost boring at this point. Like that behavior of, you know, being indifferent, real man. being indifferent to women, making them care about you and then yeah. pushing them away or leaving them before they get a chance to hurt you. It's almost like its own and Hallmark thing And being mad that they don't point. come back to you. <laughs> yeah. And um, the only woman that he's able to hold on to for any length of time here is Jan, who is, to me, was like a hor- like a reflection of him in every bad way, just as a woman. She was a disgusting. Yeah, she was. Gross, she was also gross and mean. She wasn't job to job. A writer. Yeah, uh, just kind of a bitter person. Mm-hmm. And they were able to stay with each other for you know longer than anyone else he was with in this book. But I I want to talk about the most different of all the women in the book, which was uh, Gertrude, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this to me was the. I think the most important part of the book. So if you, you remember, Gertrude is the one he meets. He's uh, traveling from town to town, and he comes down with the flu really bad one day, and he's in some snowy city. He rents out a room from a landlady, and she has two daughters or something. And one of them is a really beautiful lady named Gertrude, and you can tell from the beginning she's kind of got the hots for Bukowski. And... She's the only person in the book that does something kind to him for free. Mm. It's very simple. She just makes him a bowl of soup while he's sick because you can tell he's he's in trouble. And she gives it to him and she comforts him in this room. It, it's the only part of the whole story that has like any tenderness. Yeah. And where he's uh, shown some love. Yeah. And real love. Yeah. Real love for free where, you know, she didn't get anything out of it. She's just somebody actually helped him. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was a coincidence that um, the line he uses there is, I took the soup and I spooned it into my sickness. It was almost like, maybe I'm getting too poetic with this, <laughs> but like, you know, she was giving him something good that he was taking into the, you know, messed up part of him. Mm-hmm. And it was, I don't know, opening his heart or something silly like that. But Anyways, or maybe it was more of like a pacifier just to calm him down for that moment and then he moves on. Yeah, either way <laughs> you can tell like tonally and just in contrast to narratively everything else that happens in this book, this was the the most tender part and that mm-hmm. this person was different than almost than every other woman, every other person he meets. And she falls in love with him and they start to have this relationship, they go out and he does the exact same thing towards the end he he starts a fight over nothing she she asks him a question about a marine i think in a restaurant and he mm. he uses that as an excuse to like be upset and he starts a fight and he just walks out on her and um he almost enjoys it seems like listening to her break her stuff in her room at night after that happens so that shows to me that showed a lot about his character and it really gets to what I was talking about earlier where Bukowski the Chinaski Bukowski has not aged well with me because there's this part of that persona that's really messed up it's that willfully pushing away yeah kindness and 
it I think the best way to sum it up that idea is from one of his own poems that he wrote. I mean, he he explains it to you. He's up up front about it. It's almost like a virtue to him. So this this is called as the sparrow, but I'll just read the last couple lines. I hated you when it would would have taken less courage to love. And I think that at once is like, I don't know, very, very clear in how he's seen himself. Like he's not, Mm -hmm. he's not joking around about how it is, but that's so sad at the same time. Like, that you would why would you choose that like why would you choose to push away someone like Gertrude or push away someone that's yeah, being instead kind of like to rising you? above like all of the troubles that you went through in your life learning from it and saying I never want to treat somebody like that that to me is not it's not bravery or toughness that is, that's just fear fear of like actually having to face that yeah. part of yourself and you know, move on and forgive your parents or whatever. It's just like willfully clinging to all this mess inside of you. I know we had talked about this, but do you think it was society or Bukowski himself that was just that way? Or do you think society made him that way? Like even though he was raised that way, he lived in a world where everybody was like that and and nobody was really rooting for him at the end of the day and... You're yeah. saying is it was it more his fault or more society's for the way yeah, he turned was out? Yeah, was it did yeah, like did society have a part to play in all this like Well, the ironic thing with how much Bukowski, you know, hates on society and his fan base loves to complain about society too and oh the normies and all that stuff. <laughs> he actually ended up becoming a pretty important and valuable member of society mm-hmm. i mean he's on poetry foundation and it says that he's one of the most imitated writers of all history so whether you wanted to or not which i, I think deep down he obviously did want to be successful and important of to people, course he did but whether he whether he, the book where he's accomplished where they finally sent him a letter that he's a writer obviously he was proud of that well that happens earlier the it ends, I think, with that stripper scene. But oh, well, yeah. I'm saying, despite all of his complaining about society and everything, like he ended up helping society and being a member of society. Yeah, yeah that's true. And um, you know, without this this horrible life and all these nightmarish situations with work and his parents and people, well, he wouldn't have had anything to write about. True. I mean. He also like basically thanks that he he's grateful that he had a bad childhood and that he had parents like that. And then he went through all this stuff because he said he would have never had anything to write about. And it's what made him who he was. So it's not like he was that upset about it. Well, maybe the a, a different way to ask the question is, is there validity to the complaints he's making about specifically American working class society back then in the forties in this book, because that's, that's like his, his white whale basically is like these jobs, the, the people in them that run them, the employees, it's, it's something that drives him insane. He basically paints this picture of like a machine that grinds people up and destroys everything. 
And I think maybe there is some it is something valid about that. As far as I mean, it's World War II era, so making five cents a week is whatever he was making. I mean, it was like literally nothing, like pennies per week. You'd be like, "What the heck? How can anybody survive on that?" Yeah, but he has to eat a candy bar for like make it last for three days. Yeah, so the time period doesn't help. It is unfair that that's how much they were making, and I guess how long the hours were. But at the same time, he never really tried that hard in any of these jobs. Like it's almost like on purpose. He tried as hard as he could no, to yeah, get there, fired. There's a very telling part in the book where he says, you know, people always would come up to me at these jobs and they would be amazed at how calm I was. And they almost thought I had like a sense of wisdom about me. And what they didn't know is that I actually knew I wasn't just I wasn't going to stay in the job very long. So I didn't care. So it's it's. Almost the same as like the way he approaches women. It's like he self-sabotages from the beginning so that yeah. he never has to try his hardest and fail. It's like he gets to quit it before it quits him. But you know, to go back to the other side, I do think there is something like genuinely soul-crushing about you know the life of just like an average working person that they didn't discover you know what they really wanted to do and they just got sucked into the dog biscuit factory yeah because he didn't really make it until he was in his 50s or something where he had been very late yeah so it is unfortunate that some people with real talent are discovered too late in life um or even after they're dead um but still i i I feel sorry for him, but at the same time, it's like, dude, you literally tried to fight and kill your coworkers rather than show up on time and and just try, just try a little bit. You know, you don't have to try that hard. You, you just had to put a little bit more effort in. <laughs> and he he's kind of wrestling with it too at some points where it almost seems like he wants to succeed in that system. And there's a there's an interesting paragraph where he's I don't know if he means this or he's just fantasizing about what it'd be like to actually be successful in a job. Yeah, this is it. I'd do it too. I'd save my pennies. I'd get an idea. I'd spring a loan. I'd hire and fire. I'd keep whiskey in my desk drawer. (laughs) I'd have a wife with size 40 breasts and an ass that would make the paper boy on the street corner in his pants when he saw it wobble. I'd cheat on her and she'd know it and keep silent in order to live in my house with my wealth. I'd fire men just to see the look of dismay on their faces. I'd fire women who didn't deserve to be fired. That was all a man needed, hope. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, eh, he kind of likes that idea of maybe making it and having that power. There's so much in that paragraph to me. There is, like, his insecurity. Mm -hmm. This, like, I want to be a big man, too, even though he's just been complaining about how stupid these people that, you know, make money from business are. There's um, the de- this desire, like, not he doesn't just want to be successful, but he wants to like be successful and like have it hurt other people. <laughs> like he wants to cheat on his wife. He wants people to be jealous just because he can. So he's like been complaining about rich, successful capitalists this whole time, but he's fantasizing about being one also. So it's confusing. He, yeah, he has the, that uh, this like really evil streak in him. Yeah. 
It sounds like um, he doesn't really know. What he he always talked about in Ham on Rye, like how he loved, he would root for the villains in shows. So he, I guess that's what's also like really human about Bukowski is, it's like when we were talking about in The Last Temptation, this, these two sides mm-hmm. wrestling with each other. There's one that's like actually evil and there's one that's good and wants peace. And I don't think he knew really. Which side to take. Yeah. And that's, that's what I think puts a handicap on his writing at the end of the day is this unwillingness to really observe his, himself and deal with all this stuff and move on to do more mm-hmm. good and, you know, be more happy or, you know, it gets, it's sappy sounding, but like love himself so that he can love other people. It's true. It may sound sappy, but that that's really all he needed to accomplish. <laughs> and he doesn't quite get there throughout all his novels. But, but, but that's the, that's why I like his poetry more. I was saying, mm-hmm. because you, you do kind see, exp- he dips his toes in. That's where the good side of him comes more alive. And I mean, it's, this has been read a ton of times, but it's summed up in that bluebird poem. Like he has that the bluebird inside him that's but he keeps it in a cage on purpose and he knows it. Yeah. So Yeah. I know we had talked also about this when we did Tropic of Cancer, but there's a lot of similarities between his writing or the way I guess like the commentary they both have between Henry Miller and Bukowski. But there were just some things about Henry Miller where he was willing to admit some things where Bukowski kind of still held back and had the macho man attitude. Admit what things? Well, I mean, Miller was definitely not as, you know, oh, see, like I'm— Yeah, he had that character in his books where it was a guy that didn't care and, you know, I'm just going to drink and sleep with as many women as I can. And Bukowski uh, actually—we just got to mention, he reads Tropic of Cancer in this book. On like a train to he Texas does, yeah. or something. And he, gives and he doesn't it like it. Yeah, he doesn't like it. And he's mentioned in real life that he just couldn't get through it. It was too wordy and, and too much for him to handle. But Which, I, by the way, I think that was like his little way of like putting himself over yeah. Henry Miller because he probably did notice all the mm-hmm. similarities. But Henry Miller in real life like didn't associate himself with his character in the books Whereas Bukowski is really trying to also be that Chanasky character. Yeah, he, he just ended up in the same realm as someone like Hemingway or, you know, maybe Hunter Thompson. Most authors are like just pasty, lonely guys you never see. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there's there's a few rare ones like these guys that they become like a character in the limelight and they really play into it and they kind of get sucked into that but yeah Henry Miller I think in a weird way had less of an ego than Bukowski Bukowski. even though his writing was so much more flamboyant and like oh you know it was fancier that's for sure yeah but there there is something interesting there too with the two of them um because one of the the main similarity I would say is they're both taking aim at like normal people and working class Mm -hmm. life. And they're both saying in their books, if you've read Tropic of Cancer or this, like how terrible it is. Having like a little social commentary. Yeah, that's that's like their main thing is like society's lame. Go out and be your own person. But if you listen to Henry Miller's interviews, uh, 
instead of Bukowski, who like sticks to that in the interviews and all the time to be his character, Henry Miller, when uh, he in one interview, someone asked like, you know, why do you think that about normal people? Mm-hmm. Or like, do you really mean that? And uh, Henry Miller said something that was fascinating to me. He said that he actually has more respect for normal people who are conscious of what society is and who they are, normal people that enter into that willingly Mm -hmm. and still try to lead a good life and be a good person and have a family. He said that 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 is much harder and takes more of a person to do that than the way that he went. Now, he doesn't mean like, you know, a lot of the characters in this book where it's just brain dead people making biscuits. But like if you actually know what you're doing and you're taking on the harder task and facing this soul-sucking thing and being good anyways, he said that's more admirable and more tough and a, a bigger thing to do. And I don't think Bukowski ever got that. Or if he did, yeah. he he just pushed it down. But in that in that regard, I have to relate better to someone like Miller for admitting that, whereas Bukowski's like you say, you know, in the beginning, it sounds cool, like when you're younger to relate more to that Bukowski way of thinking. But as you get yeah. older and maybe mature, you know, what Miller's admitting there is just mature is just the better way of thinking, in my opinion. No, it's but, I, I think it's true. Like that that's what I was saying. Yeah. Bukowski, that's what makes him so appealing to like this cult niche group of like angry younger guys. Yeah. But it's also what handicapped his writing and I think really like his happiness and mm-hmm. growth as a person. And as, you know, weird and decadent as Henry Miller was, he at least got that and had moved on. And I think he was a happier guy, even though he had all those issues. But, you know, I'm I'm dumb. I'm 26. I don't know what I'm talking about. That's just... That's my push and pull relationship with Bukowski as I'm getting it's older. It's not to say that we don't like Bukowski and like, oh, he's lame. Now we've grown up. No, no. I, I still, yeah, we still love Bukowski. I, we have all of his books and we love him. And I have more Bukowski books than Probably anybody else. else. Like, <laughs> like he is extremely entertaining. So if you have never read Bukowski, this is a book that we've passed around to a lot of our friends and said, like, try this. If you want to try Bukowski, here's the perfect introduction to him. Or if you just, I found that this book is great for people who don't even like reading at all. This is, has broken in like three or four different people I've shown it to just because it's yeah. short and fun and exciting. and It's easy to get through and you can relate to it because everybody's had to work at some point in their life and, you know, feel like the working man's got you down. But yeah. Just, just, just don't to- get sucked into the Chanasky persona if you want to be like a happy person. There you go. There's your advice of the day. But yeah, please check out this book if you like this video or if you want to see more videos like this, make sure you like, subscribe, uh, hit that bell so you can be notified of future episodes. And remember, if a book is banned, it's worth reading. 